Man, is everybody doing this morning? Yeah. It's good. It is resurrection, resurrection Sunday. It is a powerful day in the house of God. It's also special that we have uh, one of our mission partners with us, Dan and Emily Heinkel. Can you stand up real quick? That good-looking family. Give them a big round of applause real quick. It's always good to see him. They do an incredible, incredible job. Uh, they're actually in Nashville, Tennessee, but they're focused on reaching the Somalian refugees that come to Nashville. The, the federal government houses them there. They're doing an incredible job just building relationships, sharing the gospel, and living the gospel out in that, that whole Somalian community. And so we're going to be able to be a part of that here in the next few weeks. You'll hear more about that, but I just want you to see them and recognize them. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. A couple months ago, I was reading a book um, by Jensen Franklin, and he tells the story that he heard from Russell Cronwell. Russell Cronwell was a guy that actually built most of Temple University, specifically the, the cathedral, the, the church on that campus. He shared this story in 1869 about a man named Ali Hafed. Ali Hafed was a guy who lived in the Middle East, and he was pretty well off. He had a, a family. He had great resources. He had a nice piece of property, a farm. He had everything kind of going his way. Until this random stranger came by his farm one day and began to talk to him. This stranger actually was an old priest. An old priest was talking about his property and his farm, and he started talking about the discovery of diamond mines all over the world. He talked about how these diamonds, if you could just get a handful of diamonds, you could buy an entire country. But if you could discover a diamond mine, you would basically be over an entire country, set up your own government, and set your children on thrones. And he was just enraptured by this, this new profound thing of searching for diamonds. And, and so he, he was talking about it and talking about it. And then that night he goes to bed. As he goes to bed, he just can't get it out of his mind. He keeps hearing the words of, of this old priest that just said, hey, if you find a handful of diamonds, you can buy a country. But if you find a diamond mind, you can set your family up for generations to come. And remember the old words of this old priest who said, you'll find diamonds when the mountains meet a stream and there's white sands at the bottom of the stream. That is where you'll always find diamonds. And so as it's going through his mind that night, this, this man who was blessed and he was content, had a great family, great property, had money and resources, went to bed poor. Because mentally he realized he didn't have anything. He didn't think. His mindset had changed. And the next day he decided he's going to go searching for diamonds. He wanted to find a diamond mine and set his family up for generations. So he gathered his stuff, sold off a lot of his stuff, got his belongings. He started going all over the world. First he went to East Africa. Hired some employees, started looking for diamonds, found no diamonds. Then he went to Palestine looking for diamond mines and searching and hired consultants and hired employees and they're looking but still no diamonds. Then he goes to Europe and, and tries to find land that people said he's looking for mountains with a stream with white sand but yet no diamonds. Finally, as he's running out of money, disheartened of this search for all these goodness and blessings and contentment, he goes to Spain, uses the last bit of money he has, searches for diamonds, buys employees and buys a consultant and buys the equipment only to find no diamonds. Disheartened, he realized he left everything he had to find nothing. And he decides to end his life, and people literally watched Ali Hafed watch the sea in Spain and watch the raging waves and watch him walk into the waters to never be seen again. Like this heartbreaking story of a guy who had everything but was looking for all the other stuff in all the wrong places and a few months later, somebody bought his farm from his family because she's a widow and couldn't afford it. And this man bought his farm and 
He was going by and on this camel because, you know, in the Middle East, you don't have horses, you have camels. You don't have horse, you don't have cowboys, you have camel boys. So he's a camel boy. And he's trying to get his camel some water at this stream. And as he's looking in the stream, he sees this, this shiny thing poking out. And he, he goes and looks in the stream. It's this black stone. He grabs this black stone, and as you move it, it just kind of reflects light differently. And he takes the black stone, thinks nothing of it, puts it in his satchel. He goes back home, puts it on his mantle. A couple days later, this old stranger, this old priest, the same old priest who told Ali about the diamond mines, comes to check on this new owner of this farm. And he's talking to this farmer, and all of a sudden, something gets his attention on the mantle. It's the black stone. And this old priest looks at the mantle and says, that's a diamond. The farmer says, no, nah, bro, no, that's a black stone. He said, no, that is a diamond. Where did you find it? He said, in the stream that comes from the mountains in the white sand. And he says, show me. And he takes them on their camels. They go down the, the pathway. They go to the stream, the same place. And as they look in the stream, as they stir up the white sands with their fingers, diamonds start appearing everywhere. And the diamonds are bigger, bigger and shinier than the diamond that was on his mantle. And it actually happened to be now the diamond mine of Golconda, which is one of the most historic diamond mines in all of earth. It's where royal families, Queen Elizabeth, get their royal jewels from. And so it's amazing that this man found exactly what Ali Hafed was searching for on his own property that he left behind with his own camel that he left behind, even with his own family around that he'd left behind. It's astonishing. It's astonishing that, that somebody could have everything, but they overlook what they have to search for what they can't obtain. And for me, you know, being in the Bible Belt and growing up in the Bible Belt, it's, it's amazing to me how many young people grow up in the faith of their mom and dad or their grandparents. And they stand on acres of diamonds of grace, of joy, of hope, of peace, of love, of salvation, of eternity. But they're so convinced by some stranger out there that tells them there's diamond mines out there in the world. There's diamonds of hope and diamonds of love and diamonds of joy, diamonds of prosperity and diamonds of happiness. And they leave the diamonds that they have because they're not willing to stir up the sands to go deeper of their own faith to search for something out there, only to realize it never produces the life that everybody promises it's gonna produce. In Luke chapter 24, we see the disciples after Jesus died, they go searching, but they go searching in the wrong places. Starting in verse one, it says this. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went out to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling white apparel. It's even amazing. Even on the first Easter, they were dressing up. It's, it's interesting. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, for he has risen. He says, but remember how he told you. Remember, remember how he told you. While he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. It's amazing in three days they forget all that Jesus had told them. It's amazing how when you go through trauma or you go through a situation, how you forget the promises of God because you're so consumed with the sorrow you're currently facing. 
And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. It's a fairy tale. Like who, Jesus didn't resurrect. How, hey, how could he resurrect? It's a myth. It's a fairy tale. It's, it's some falsehood. It's some conspiracy. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths but by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had just happened. Skip down to verse 36. It says, and they were talking about these things, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. First of all, if a ghost stands up, he better say peace because I'm running. Peace to you. But they were startled because they thought he was a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and see my feet. That is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. He showed them the wounds. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. You know, after three days, you're hungry. And the first thing Jesus did was went to Newburn's for the catfish special. You know, you could have chose steak or anything else, but he chose catfish. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, everybody say everything, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is the entire Old Testament. It all must be fulfilled. Then he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It's, it's so interesting that we get so complacent with this story that these disciples, they're, they're, they're concerned Jesus passed away, he's dead, he's been crucified publicly, publicly shamed, and they go to the tomb just to honor the death of Jesus, to go to set up a shrine to, to honor the life and death of Jesus, forgetting that he promised them that he would also be resurrected. And they go and they're searching for Jesus, the resurrected life in a graveyard. I don't know about you, but maybe I, I know I have, I've looked for life in all the dead places. You know, as a singer once said, looking for love in all the wrong places. Maybe you know that side of the story better, but that's what they were doing. They were looking for life in dead places. Like who goes to a graveyard to look for life? Who goes to the graveyard looking for hope? Who goes to the graveyard looking for joy? Who goes to the cemetery looking for purpose? But that's where they're going. They're going back to the grave instead of looking for the risen Savior. He says, what are you doing? You're not going to find life here. You're not going to find it here. This is a place for dead things. He is risen. He is alive. And so maybe you've come here today and you've been looking for life in all the dead places. Yeah, maybe it's not a cemetery, maybe it's not a graveyard, maybe it's not a funeral home, but you've been looking at a dead place, say, well, what is a dead place? A dead place is anywhere that looks on the surface like it contains life, 
but actually produces no new life. Right, so if you go to a grave door today, it's a beautiful day. If you go, there's gonna be flowers that are beautiful. There'll be tulips and daisies. There'll be green grass. There'll be sunlight. There'll be oak trees. It gives the appearance of life, but it doesn't produce life. And there's things that we, we go, we pursue lurk, looking for diamonds or searching for diamonds in life that all they are are dead places. On the surface, they give an appearance of something, but they cannot produce it in your life. So maybe for you, maybe it's, your, your relationships. You go from one relationship to the next. You, you, for a moment, you find that new guy, that new girl, you're in love, you change your Facebook status to, you know, in a, in a serious relationship, and four days later, after the adrenaline wears off, you realize, hey, he's a three-time convicted felon. You change your status to, it's complicated. <laughs> and then you go to the new guy, and you keep going, and you go from relationship to relationship, hoping they'll produce life, but they give you moments of life only to bring more complication and dead things. Maybe for you, it's, it's your career, that you just give your life to your career, thinking, if I can give my life to a career, I can make this money, I can get to the top, I can get promoted, I can do this. But the more you're in it, the more you realize it takes life away than actually gives you life. Maybe it's a business, your business owner, think, if I can just build my business and leave something to my kids, only realize that you're losing more of your life than actually gaining life. Maybe for you, it's for the weekend. You think, if I just get to the weekend, I go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, working for the man, but Friday night, it is on. And you go and you hit up the two bars in, in Florence, Alabama. And you live large. And for a moment, you numb the frustrations, you numb the pain, and you feel alive for a minute. And you get the attention of the opposite sex because you're, you're dressed in the nines. But then you wake up the next morning and realize it's all fleeting and it's all faded away. Maybe for you, it's through your kids' sports that you live for your kids' ball sports, football, basketball, baseball, dance, cheerleading. And when you're there, you feel joy, you feel excitement, you feel proud. But as soon as your kids turn 18 and they play no more, it's fleeting. It doesn't produce life. There's so many things that we search life from that doesn't actually produce Life. Maybe for you, it's your hobbies and interests. Maybe you're a bass fisher or a deer hunter. It's happy while the season's going on, but when the season's over, it's fleeting. Or maybe it's Alabama football. You give your life. Everything you own has a cursive A on it. The first game of the season, it's great, but then after they get beat by Tennessee, it's like Nick Saban's garbage. His name is actually Nick Satan. We need somebody else. Like this is... And it's fleeting. Or when the season's over, the joy is gone. I know if you're an Auburn fan, you can't have football or basketball. So maybe for you, if you're an Auburn fan, you live for gymnastics season. <laughs> or maybe it's just in your sexuality that you live in a moment of sexual pleasure. It gives you a sense of being alive and wanted and loved. Whether that's through the opposite sex or same-sex attraction, you find people who affirm you for a moment, but it's temporary and it's fleeting. See, there's so many things that we, we seek and we search for these diamonds that are only promised from Jesus that we search for and we get glimpses of them, but they don't last. They fade away, they're temporary. See, you'll never find life in a dead place. You may find temporary happiness, but never everlasting joy. You may find a momentary peace that numbs the pain, but not a peace that surpasses understanding. You may find temporary physical satisfaction, but not deep inner contentment and fulfillment. You may find what seems to be love, 
but not eternal, unconditional love. You may find hope for a moment, but not a hope that reaches beyond the grave. See, you may find temporary glimpses of life, but not full life in Jesus. And it's sad because there's so many people that have went tasting sin, and it tastes sweet for a moment, but in the end is bitter. There's so many prodigals that are tempted by the stories of strangers saying there's diamonds out here. And they go into all the world and find that there's not diamonds, it's just pig slop. Or like the young lady who preached at the young adult service this past week from the Radiant School of Ministry. She said, I had too much of God to be happy in the world and too much of the world to be happy with God. And, she, and you're in this conflict between searching for life but you can't ever find it because you're grabbing hold of two things. That's where the, I believe the disciples were. They were searching for life in a graveyard. And the angel tells them, hey, you're not going to find it here. Like you're, you're, Your searching is over. And there's something about a dead end is a great place to turn back around and go back. And they come to this dead end. They turn around and go back. Yet it says they are perplexed. They didn't believe Jesus when he showed them the scars in their hand. They didn't believe Jesus when he showed them the scars in his feet. They didn't believe Jesus when he showed them the empty tomb. It says they thought it was an idle tale. Touch your neighbor and say fairy tale. They literally thought it was a fairy tale. The disciples who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, saw the resurrected Jesus, thought this was a fairy tale. And their minds were complexed and just twisted. They're like, how could this be? Why? Because the natural world in us, all we know is that you live and then you die. That, that, that's what we know. That's what our minds are trained to believe. That's what our lives are trained to believe. That's what our culture and our traditions are, are, are created to reinforce. But then Jesus comes. He doesn't live to die. He actually dies to live. And even the disciples who saw all the promises fulfilled, saw the healing, saw the miracles, saw the teaching, they saw Jesus, they saw the scars, they saw it all, even them. It's this mindset between do we live to die or do we die to live? It messed up their minds because in the natural, you live and you die. But in the kingdom, you die in order to live. And Jesus literally took the keys to death, hell, and the grave from the enemy, from Satan, in order to give us this new life, that death is actually the doorway or the gateway to the newness in the kingdom of heaven. They're messed up. They're, they're profound. They thought it was a fairy tale. So maybe you, like me, I used to be atheist. I don't, I don't know about everybody in this room, but you grew up in church or grew up in the South. But I was atheist, agnostic. I, I thought Jesus was probably a great teacher. I thought he was a good moral man, a good rabbi. I thought he had great teachings, you know, how to love your neighbor, how to treat people. He's kind of like a Buddha figure to me. But the resurrection, people just don't get resurrected. And they especially don't resurrect themselves. And so I didn't believe in the resurrection. And, and I would tell you, maybe you, you don't believe in the resurrection. The disciples, to help you, the disciples didn't believe in it at first either. But I will tell you, the resurrection is of the utmost importance. If it's not true, it has no ramifications on your life. It has no ramifications on your marriage has no ramifications on your finances, no ramifications on your family, no ramifications on your finances, no ramifications on this world, no ramifications on your ideology, no ramifications on your sexuality, has no ramifications on what you do, what you do it with, how you do it, no ramifications. If it's not true, you can go live your life and do whatever you want to. But if it is true, it is the, of the utmost, utmost consequences. Because there's never been anyone 
who has said, I'm going to be crucified, and then I'm going to be in the grave for three days, and I'm going to come out, and when I come out, I'm going to have the keys of death, hell, and the grave, and I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall have life with me eternally. If it is true, it has the utmost ramifications on every single area of your life, including your eternity. And so when these disciples are saying, I think it's an idle fairy tale, maybe you're there, and I want to to help you. One, it wasn't just Christians who proclaimed the resurrection. There's also Jewish historians. Josephus, one of the most famous, said this way. He said, now there was about this time, Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to even call him a man at all, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to himself both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. Josephus, a Jewish man, is saying he's the Messiah. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. So you have a non-Christian who's saying the resurrection actually caused this whole movement to begin. Then you see with the Jews, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious people, when it came to the resurrection, they didn't deny the empty tomb. Like they never denied the empty tomb. They tried to come up with other theories of what it could have happened to his body, but they never denied the empty tomb. Then you have the fact there's no tomb or enshrined to Jesus. That if, if anybody dies, if we go to the graveyard, people place flowers on the graves of their loved ones. Why? Because they're trying to honor or enshrine them. If a celebrity dies young, you'll see the news and people are flocking to the site of their home or the site of their death and laying flowers and pictures in memory of them. Yet there is no enshrined tomb for Jesus. Why? Because there is no tomb. And there's other theories, if you throw those up, that maybe you fit in one of these. That The first one is the resuscitation theory, which is just simply put that when Jesus was on the cross, he faced so much pain and agony and anguish and stress on his body that he went unconscious and went into a coma. They also call this a swoon theory. That he went to a coma. He wasn't really dead. He just went into a coma unconscious. They took him, placed him into the tomb, sealed the tomb. Three days later, he comes back into consciousness and escapes. Right? Well, there's a couple things wrong with that. One, you're telling me the Roman guards, who were the first to say he was dead, were trained in death. They were executioners. They knew if somebody was alive or dead. Plus, if they allowed somebody who was supposed to be executed to live, they would be executed themselves. That's why the Roman guard actually put the spear in the side of Jesus to ensure he was actually dead. Two, if this theory is true, you have a man who's been beaten and flogged and dragged through town. Nails placed through his hands and his feet. He's been stabbed with a spear in his chest. He's been suffocating on the cross in the heat of summer. He's been laid in a cold tomb with very little oxygen for three days. And you think he completely resuscitated, came back strong as a Marvel comic book superhero, pushed the stone out of the way, and fought off all the Roman guard, which is 17 to 20 people. Like, it's impossible. The second theory would be this. It would be the no burial theory. The theory is Jesus was never actually put in the tomb to begin with. Instead, he was thrown into a mass grave for criminals, according to Roman custom. That was what he should have been done. But we know he was given a tomb in order to be placed into. And so if this theory was true, 
Neither the Jewish leaders nor the Roman soldiers would have bothered to seal the tomb. Why did they seal the tomb? Because it was prophesied that he would stand and come out of the tomb on his own. They sealed the tomb to prevent him from coming out. They placed a guard over the tomb to prevent somebody from stealing the body or coming there to take the body. Number three is this. It's the mass hallucination there, which is my favorite. Everyone who claimed to see the risen Lord was hallucinating out of an earnest desire to see Jesus. One, they weren't earnestly seeking the living Jesus. They were at his grave seeking his tomb. So they weren't even expecting. They'd forgotten the promises of the resurrection, and they were just focused on the life and death of Jesus, not the resurrection. So they weren't even expecting it. Two, at one point, 500 people saw him at the same time. So either they all got a hold of the same mushrooms and bad drugs at the same time, and just happened to see the same Jesus. Like, bro, like it's like a Cheech and Chong episode. Like, bro, like what you see, man, I see Jesus. Like all at the same time. No, no, no. Like 500 people. No, it, there's no way it could have happened. And last but not least, the stolen body theory, which is the theory that Jesus died, he was placed in a tomb, but the disciples came and stole his body in order to keep the claims that he was resurrected there. There's so much wrong with this. One, they weren't living their lives like they were expecting him to be resurrected. Two, they were scared while he was still alive, they were running for their lives. Peter's denying Jesus. And they expected him to be bold and courageous enough to sneak him, kill off an entire Roman centurion guard as fishermen versus soldiers, trained professional soldiers, and then move this tomb, the stone out of the way, steal the body, and then hide the body to this day nobody's found it, and then be willing to die miserable deaths for a lie they know is a lie. It's absolutely bonkers. And the only other theory is Jesus is this God-came-to-earth man who suffered in every way like us, who was taken to the cross to pay for our sins, died, was buried, and was resurrected by the power of God himself and took the hammer that he had placed on him with the nails in his hand and placed the nail in the coffin of death, hell, and the grave. Graves contain dead things, but they cannot contain the resurrected life. And so the disciples, as they're, they're fighting this, they, they were trying to figure out how could this be? And so Jesus shows them the empty tomb. He shows them himself. He eats dinner with them. He shows them the scars of his hands and his feet, trying to show them the resurrection. But that wasn't enough. It, it wasn't enough. They, they saw. And I hear some people, well, if you know, if I could just see Jesus resurrected, then I would believe. If I could see the, the nail scars in his hand, then I would believe. The disciples saw it. Yet they were still in disbelief. They saw the empty tomb, yet they thought it was an idle tale. And what that tells me is there's a difference between knowing about the resurrection and knowing the power of the resurrection. And what they knew, they knew about the resurrection. They knew the empty tomb. They knew the, the scars of Jesus. They, they knew the prophecy. Now they remembered these things. But there's a difference that tells me that an empty tomb does not produce salvation. It also tells me the resurrection actually doesn't produce salvation. It tells me that something else has happened because Jesus, one of the first things he does after he has the fish fry is he preaches the gospel to the disciples he's already preached the gospel to. He showed them the scars, showed them the tomb, but he says, hey, listen, the law of the prophets, 
The law of Moses, the law of the prophets, the Psalms, it all points to me. And this is the gospel. He begins to proclaim the gospel to them. That means that an empty tomb does not produce eternal life. Only the gospel produces faith for eternal life. It means that you can know all about the resurrection, but you might not know the power of the resurrection. And my fear for us as people is this. That we've gotten so familiar with Easter Sundays. So familiar with Easter egg hunts. So familiar with getting dressed up like you're going to court after church. So familiar with Easter traditions. So familiar with Easter baskets. So familiar with Easter Sunday dinner. But became so unfamiliar with the power of the resurrection. There's been a disconnect between the resurrection and our ideas of the resurrection and the actual power to live out the resurrection. And that disconnect is what's causing the believers to go into all the world searching for diamonds in all the wrong places. Because when you experience the power of the resurrection, you live out the power of the resurrection. You live in the fullness of God. You live in the joy of God. You live in the peace of God. You live in the hope of God. You live in the overcoming victory of God. When you live in the resurrection life, you actually live in the power of the resurrected life. And so in order for Jesus to get the disciples there, it wasn't the empty tomb. It wasn't the resurrection. He begins to preach the gospel to them. The gospel that is all about Jesus. He says, look at this. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the Psalms. Look at the prophets. Look at Isaiah. Look at Jeremiah. Look at Ezekiel. Look at Malachi. It's all about me. See, the gospel isn't just about love. It's about Jesus and his love. It's not just about freedom. It's about Jesus and his freedom. It's not about an empty tomb or the resurrection. It's about what that means for the man God, Jesus, that he preexisted before the world was ever created. He left heaven on his throne to come down to earth, took on human flesh, but had the God man inside of him, was born of a virgin in the line of David. He suffered through temptation. He suffered through betrayal, persecution, through mocking, suffered through the crucifixion, suffered through death, went in the grave for three days, comes out of the grave preaching that I've conquered everything you could ever face. Have you been betrayed? I've conquered. You've been mocked? I've, I've overcome. Have you faced death? I've overcome. He's overcome it all. And the gospel is this, that Jesus came to accomplish what we could never accomplish. In his life, in his death, in his burial, his resurrection, and his return, he came to conquer sin for us. That for those of us that repent and turn from our wicked ways and turn to him, he brings us into his resurrection and gives us a resurrection, meaning we have to die to ourselves so now we can resurrect with him. That is the gospel. It's not just that Jesus rose from the dead. It's why he rose from the dead. It's the power which he rose from the dead with. And so we need to know that the gospel is not just about being forgiven of your sins. We've all grown up in the South where it's, you know, just raise your hand. You know, if you're, you're a sinner, and got to forgive you. No, it's not about that. It's about making dead people alive. It's not about morality. It's not about just trying to do better. It's not about trying to live up to the morals of Jesus or the examples of Jesus. That's part of it. But it's about taking dead people who are searching for life in all the wrong places, but taking dead people who've tried but have failed, taking dead people and bringing them out of their personal tombs into the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Jesus said throughout his ministry. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that may have life and have it more abundantly. 
John 11, he resurrects Lazarus. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. What's he doing? We die to live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's what Jesus is preaching. He didn't go around saying, you sinner, you sinner, you sinner. I'm going to forgive you sin. He says, no, no, no. You are dead. You are dead bones. And I'm trying to bring you life. So the question would be this. Are you walking in the resurrection power of Jesus? Are you fully alive with his power? Are you fully alive with his joy, with his hope, with his peace, by his love, with his mercy, with his grace, with his freedom? Are you fully alive or are you just existing? Like you may be breathing, but are you really living? See, there's a, there's a difference. You can go to your job, nine to five, you can go home to your kitchen, you can go to your ball games, and you can be there, but not actually living. Man, I read this a couple years ago. It was a story this mortician had written. He says, it's amazing how dead bodies actually show signs of life. He says, they can actually show you that when somebody dies, their fingernails actually keep growing. And they actually have tremors in their body. Their muscles will actually still move. That gives them like their glimpses of life. And spiritually the same way. You can be dead spiritually, but still give signs of life in moments. Like you can give this little tremor of hope or this little tremor of joy, this little tremor. But it's not sustaining, long-term, deeply rooted, inner, eternal joy, hope, and love. And so my question would be, do you just go through moments of life or are you fully alive? Because hear this. Jesus resurrected to take you from existing to being fully alive in him. Not so that you live and then die, but so that you can die and live forever and ever. That's the gospel. We've gotten so familiar with it that we've simplified it to a point where it's no longer the gospel. We just think, I messed up, I need a savior. I messed up, I need to be forgiven. I, I'm guilty, I need this. No, it's you're dead and you need to be resurrected. Well, how do I do that, Pastor? Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. As Billy Graham said, the cross shows us the seriousness of our sin, but also shows us the immeasurable love of God. Like my sin is serious, but his love and his grace go deeper. So what should I do, Pastor? Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I mean, I gotta say it with my mouth and believe it in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Not that he was just God, but God raised him, resurrected him from the dead. You will be saved. For with a heart, one believes and is justified. With a mouth, one confesses and is saved. Then in Mark 16, 16, he says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. It's that it's a gift. As Jesus came out of the grave, even to the disciples, he said, here's the resurrection. Look at it. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. I'm here. I'm with you. This is the right. He preaches them gospel. He says, the Son of Man had to suffer and die and rise again on the third day so that I could preach repentance and forgiveness of sins so you could live forever. Do you realize as Jesus showed up on that first Easter to the disciples, these women, to show them the resurrection. He's here today trying to show you the resurrection. He's trying to show you his wounds were for you. He's trying to show you that the resurrection is the linchpin of eternity. He's trying to show you how much he loved you, that he was willing to suffer 
on your behalf so that you can experience his resurrection and his life. And he says, all you have to do to receive that gift is repent, which means you come out of your tomb, you leave whatever's in your tomb there because you're already dead. You leave your, your shame, your guilt, your fear, your sin, all that, you leave that there. You repent, you come out and you experience his resurrection. You confess it with your mouth that he is Lord and he rose from the dead. You believe in your heart and then you go through baptism so you can experience the washing, the death of the old you and the resurrection of the new you. That is the greatest gift you'll ever receive. You don't even have to tear the stupid paper off. He places it in your heart. You just have to receive it by confessing. So if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes just for one quick second. I know it's Easter Sunday. I know there's a lot of things on the agenda today. I know there's, you know, family gatherings to go to. I know there's stuff going. I know everything's been public. There's photo booths. There's all that. But this is one private moment to make this real, to move this from being about the resurrection of Jesus, the day of the resurrection, and making this about the power of the resurrection in your life. So this is a private moment, just me and you. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. This is the question you need to ask yourself. Am I living with knowledge of the resurrection? I've been to Sunday school. I know the story. I know what Easter is about. Or are you living in the power of the resurrection? So how do I know the difference? Oh, you know the difference. If you don't know the difference, that means you've not experienced the power of the resurrection. Because it moves you from death to life, from dark to light, from night to day, from hopeless to hope, from scattered to purpose, from chaos to peace. It moves you into the resurrected power in life of Jesus. And if you haven't, if you're not, then today's your day. I'm not going to have you stand up or come forward, but I am going to ask you to do exactly what the scripture said, to believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And for training purposes, I'm going to have you do that just with me and you. So if you said, that's me, pastor. I'm not living in that resurrection power. But I want today to be the day I come out of the grave. I stop searching for all the diamonds all over the world, searching for diamonds in all the wrong places. And I receive the diamond of salvation that Jesus has for me. That's you. Like I said, I'm not going to have you stand up or come forward. I just want you to slip, simply raise your hand so I can see you, so I can pray for you. He says, that's me, Pastor. Thank you. Anybody else? Wait another moment. So that's me. I need to experience the resurrection power. Thank you. Anybody else? Here's what I'm going to pray for you in just a second. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. We believe this is the beginning, not the end of the journey. Before you leave today, there's going to be on this screen behind me a text in number or a QR code. If you could just take that, fill it out, we want to help you by getting some resources in your hands, but also just touching base with you to walk with you into the new resurrected life. But Father, we thank you so much for your blessings, for your mercy, for your grace. We thank you for the resurrection power of Jesus. He cleanses us with his blood and cleanses us of all unrighteousness gives us peace and joy that surpasses this life. And so, Father, those who raise their hands, I pray right now as they're confessing the resurrection and confessing their need for you, confessing that you are Lord, I pray right now that you wash them in the blood of Jesus, that you cleanse them, that you set their feet on solid ground, 
and you give them resurrection power from this day forward in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. If you would stand to your feet all over the room, please.